This is Strange New Trek, a podcast about the life and times of Captain Christopher Pike. And now, your hosts. Space is very dark and full of mushrooms. Stardate Discovery Season 2, Episode 3. In the darkness of space, you may find yourself lost in a sea of fungi, but if you're lucky, you'll also find an annoying sidekick and a lost loved one, and perhaps a point of light. I'm your captain, Jeremy Vilmer, and joining me to discuss whether or not this episode is a point of light or a fart in the dark, Chris Noonien Singh. Hey, hey, hey. (laughs) (laughs) What's happening, Chris? Not a whole lot, man. What's up to you? Oh, you know, just uh, Sunday afternoon. Watching, you know, Captain Pike-based episodes of Star Trek and talking about it, you know? Sounds like a good time. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Talk about Point of Light. Yeah. All right. So in the opening teaser, Burnham walks the corridors of the USS Discovery. The lights suddenly dim as the computer announces that the Commander Training Program's half marathon is approaching. Tilly falls behind as she runs through the uh, May Ahern, and no one but Tilly is able to see her. Tilly says aloud to May that she had only gone to Musk Junior High School for six months before her mother was moved to another post, and that she hadn't spoken to May in years, and besides that, May died in 2252. Yeah, I remember watching this for the first time and just being super creeped out by May, especially once you fully grasp that nobody else can see her, because, I mean, you kind of get a little hints about it in episode two. But they kind of like did a um, Sixth Sense type thing where they made it sort of ambiguous as to whether people could see her or not. But in this one, you fully realize that nobody can see her but Tilly. And that run through is kind of extra weirdy, you know, when she just jams right through another person. It just that always like gives me the X when I see that in shows and movies, just like even if they're intangible, going through somebody else is kind of gross. Yeah. And then somehow through this whole conversation. Tilly manages to catch back up with her marathon runners and then also win. Yes. So she's running and speaking at the same time, but not not really losing her breath and then outrunning everybody else. No, because she when she first runs through May, she stops and has a quick conversation with her. And yet still catches up to everybody else and wins. Yeah, even though she was in the rear, like uh, leading up to <laughs> running through May. I have to figure, you know, she must have just started tackling people, Chris. You know, they didn't show it, but she was just like knocking them down. That's got to be what happened, right? Could be. So, yeah, she runs and catches up. First across the finish line, the first officer, Saru, congratulates Tilly on her fortitude and dismisses the trainees after reminding them that there will be shadow exercises, which is a term I was completely unfamiliar with. (laughs) Yeah, I don't think I'd heard about that before. Saru and Burnham return to the bridge. The ship is at yellow alert as an unidentified vessel is approaching. The vessel contacts the Discovery and informs them that they are a private vessel with diplomatic registry and are not authorized to reveal more. The captain is also requested to transport one aboard. Michael assumes it is Sarek and Pike and her head to the transporter room. Pike speculates that Sarek may be there for another reason. He had informed Starfleet Command of Spock's drawing of the Seven Signals in his confinement at Starbase 5 and believes word may have reached the Ambassador. 
While Burnham reassures Pike that he did not betray his friend by following protocol, Pike remarks that that's easy to say and harder to believe. I still have questions about Spock and Pike's relationship. Are they as tight as Kirk and Spock? Because it kind of seems like it. Yeah, that's the impression I get too. I don't think Spock would take issue. Well, the Spock that we already know, I don't think he would have an issue with Pike doing what he did with reporting stuff like that. And movie Spock definitely wouldn't. No. (laughs) In fact, movie Spock would expect him to report that. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) When the person beams aboard, it turns out to be Amanda Grayson, uh, Sarek's wife, Spock's mother, Michael Burnham's uh, foster mother. I was half expecting Winona Ryder, I'm not going to lie. You know what, though? It's Mia Kirshner playing her here, right? And she kind of looks like Winona Ryder. Yeah, a little bit. (laughs) <laughs> but yeah, that would have been cool if they could have got Winona Ryder just to kind of keep a visual uh, constant, you know, that would have been kind of wild. It was Jane Wyman that played her on the original series. I think that was the mom from Lost in Space or something too, you know. She was kind of old in the original series, wasn't she? Yeah, she was. She was older. Amanda and Michael embrace and Amanda tells her not to react. Spock needs their help. And Burnham is the only person Amanda could turn to. So that's our teaser, even though I would have called that act one, but you know, that's our teaser breakdown. Well, yeah. So the wiki breaks it down like that, but if you really notice, there's like a, an A and a B story going on here at the same time, all this stuff with Spock and well, I guess there's even a C story. The A story is kind of in the background. That's the stuff with Spock. Then the B story is probably Tilly and May. And then the C story is where Act 1, well, where the wiki says Act 1 starts. So given all the the plots and subplots going on here, it'd be real hard to break it into acts. <laughs> One of the things I liked about Star Trek The Next Generation is their act structure was always very much, you know, whatever happens, commercial break, that's Act 1. Whatever happens next, commercial break, that was Act 2. Very consistent. I always liked it because, it, hey, here's your setup. Here's your danger music. There's the first commercial. Act one is done. (laughs) Okay, Laurel, the Klingon Chancellor, addresses the High Council, which looks a bit more Klingon now than they did last season. Oh, yeah, that's uh, borne out in a conversation Ash and Michael have about the Klingons growing their hair back, finally. Yeah. So they kind of lessened the makeup a little bit. They kept, like, some of the different coloring that they put in. But they gave everybody long hair and mustaches and kind of went a little bit yellow peril with the looks a little bit. Well, like that's what I mean, that's that's where the Klingons kind of came from. They were a cross between communist fear and yellow peril. She shows a projection of the new D7 cruiser, a ship meant for a unified Klingon empire, not house by house combat. Yeah, definitely a, a ship that we are used to seeing now. The Warbird, it looks like, or at least an early version of it. Yeah, it's the, uh, yeah, the D7 is what they called it on the original show. I didn't know, I didn't know Klingons used the Roman alphabet, but okay, I'm cool with it. (laughs) And she says that Voke, which is Ash Tyler with a samurai ponytail and a scruffy beard, will oversee the new ship construction. Coleshaw insults Tyler and says, you know, kind of like letting human pets sleep in your bed, you know, kind of making an insinuation of bestiality in a way. No, that's not how I took it. I took it as, I think, so we know from season one of Discovery that Ash Tyler is like two personalities, Volk and the human Ash Tyler. 
Somehow they put Volk into Ash's body. I think the upper echelon of the Klingons know about that, but they still look at him as human because that's what he looks like. I don't think they necessarily all the way believe Volk's in there. But I think the, the insinuation was more like, um, that's a human play toy for you. He should be in the bedroom, not out here doing this. <laughs> oh, see, and the way I kind of read into it, because you remember the previous season, they ate Captain Giorgio. And now they're talking about a, a human pet. And I was thinking of it, you know, they're kind of pointing out the species difference here. Like, almost like, you know, you like, you know, you shouldn't be running around things outside the bloodlines, basically, you know, from different worlds. And maybe I read into it a little too far. I just got it as um, because her and Valk had a relationship and now Valk's inside Tyler. They understand that, that she probably uses him sexually, too. And to keep him in her bedroom for that purpose and not out here doing the political stuff. Your uh, insight could be right, too. I don't know. I kind of was reading it for the most <laughs> offensive thing you could find, you know. <laughs> and then Colshaw references the dots as an omen, talks about blood falling on the Klingon Empire. Some more words are exchanged. Tyler threatens Colshaw and attempts to wipe the war paint from his face. I kind of like the way they're they're handling the Klingons here because even though the makeup is still different, they are more recognizable to us. Yeah, I still think they look super weird given how Klingons have been portrayed in the past but i don't know my thing is there some of them have like super large backs of their heads it looks weird yeah yeah they do have that extra pointy melon thing going on yeah but going back to ash's move to try to wipe that paint off i'm surprised i didn't get him killed right there <laughs> i was just waiting for it <laughs> going off of ash's look here a little bit because he's a little scruffy he's got his hair in a top knot you know the kid that wrote our theme song, uh, Miguel? Yeah. I'm kind of thinking he might be a Klingon in a human body. <laughs> he got that same look? He's got that same look. He's got like scruffy beard and a top knot, listens to like really loud music. <laughs> I mean, I'm not 100% sure, but I, I, I kind of think Miguel might be a Klingon shaved down into human shape. <laughs> oh, man. Maybe. <laughs> Weirder things have happened, right? Yeah. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so then we cut back to the discovery. Burnham and Amanda discuss the seven signals. Amanda reveals Sarek told her about them. Amanda had gone to Starbase 5, and no one would give her an update on Spock or let him see him or give her his personal effects or anything. So she did the only thing a mother could do in that situation. She stole his medical records. Then we cut back to Kronos. Laurel's uncle, whose name I cannot pronounce, Eugeli, I think is what it is, but I'm not... 100% sure on that pronunciation. That's close enough, man. <laughs> but it's Laurel's uncle. He uh, arrives at the chancellor's residence and refuses to engage with Tyler. Tyler vents his frustration that despite everything he's done and her cause, the other members of the Klingon High Council still don't see him as a true Klingon. Laurel counters that it shouldn't matter what other people think. It should just matter what she thinks. Mm-hmm. Sounds like a little bit of abusive gaslighting to me, but what the hell. Well, the the conversation you're talking about happens after Tyler's meeting with Laurel's uncle. So Tyler's complaining that every time he walks into a room where Eugeli, I guess that's where we're going to go with yeah, <laughs> for yeah. his name. Every time he walks in a room with Eugeli, everybody stops talking. And so he's frustrated about that. And he starts the the whole thing like, what are you not telling me? And this and that. And that's the scene where 
he finds out he has a kid with Lorel, or at least um, Volk does. Oh, but the baby's a little albino, just like he was, and uh, he he seems a little little disconcerted by the whole process. She lays a big kiss on him, and he kind of acts traumatized, and he tells her that for him that triggers a memory of trauma being suffered at her hands, and everything feels like a violation. Yeah, yeah. Well, he also says, you know, part of me is liking this because I'm Volk, but the human side of me, you may as well just be raping me. That's got to be a weird thing to have those two, uh, I don't know if you'd call them consciousness, but I don't remember exactly what the deal was uh, when they sort of put Volk in Tyler's body, but it's got to be super frustrating for him to have um dual memories i guess and uh they are opposite of each other <laughs> yeah one where you're in love and one where you were held as like a sex prisoner basically because that was the whole thing during the last season he was having such a problem with because he wasn't i guess he wasn't activated yet Volk wasn't activated yet so ash was getting all these flashbacks of what he perceives as rapes but laurel perceives as you know making love with Valk. it's just his his memory was all stirred at that point yeah and it seems like in some way it still is at this point uh yeah you know i've still got a lot of questions about the ash tyler character and you know what was what because the way i understood it there was no ash tyler before Volk had his bones shaved and terrifying surgeries done to him and then a second personality program to him but then I look at it and go, well, there had to have been an Ash Tyler. Otherwise, they couldn't have just stuck him on a Federation ship. Well, at the point that he joined Discovery, and this is all going off like my memory of stuff I watched a while ago and haven't like looked into much more. So I could be wrong on my interpretation of this. But if you remember the point at which Ash got on the ship, they were in the middle of a war. So uh, the background checking may have not been super high priority you look like a human <laughs> yeah i'd have to go back and look at exactly what they did but to me it's not very far-fetched that he was able to get on there um especially like you said if there was a ash tyler already there obviously had to have been because there's memories from both ash and volk in his body right now his set of memories could just be you know false memories that were implanted but for him just to be left as a, you know, because he was freed by Lorca and brought back to the Discovery. And at some point. Oh, yeah, because that's when they meet Mud for the first time. Yeah. Because <laughs> at some point, somebody would have like, hey, let's get your fingerprints and make sure you're not an Orion traitor or something. And so he had to have checked out somewhere with somebody. Yeah. Or, I mean, maybe his uh, false memories were just believable enough to Lorca. That they didn't bother because Lorca was in prison with them and they, they went through quite a little bit, as I remember. So it could be that um, he had that trust built up enough to where it wasn't a, wasn't a thing. And Lorca kind of had other plans that he was working on. You know, he had his own set of priorities. Yeah, that's true, too. He was basically like a, I don't want to say a double agent, but sort of. Yeah, more, <laughs> it was more or less, yeah. So we cut back to the Discovery. And it's Amanda, Burnham, and Pike. Amanda tells Pike that she was right to come to him for help. Unfortunately, Pike replies he cannot open the medical file as it would violate regulations. Burnham points out that there was a precedent in Starfleet case law 
Then Pike opens a communication with Captain Diego Vela on Starbase 5. High priority. Vela apologizes for not returning Pike's earlier calls. Pike asks for an update on Spock. Vela tells him that Spock's case is classified. Man, Pike's starting to get a little irritated here. As his captain, he should know what's going on with Spock's progress. Vela then explains that Spock is, in fact, wanted for murder. He's killed three of his doctors and fled the starbase. When that popped up, I was just like, what the... What is going on? (laughs) Well, and then to make things even more complicated, somebody stole his medical files, so they're pretty sure there's like a conspiracy afoot, which I thought was kind of funny because, you know, what a bad time (laughs) to do that, you know? After the call ends, Amanda Pike and Burnham don't believe that Spock could be a murderer. Coming back to kind of our general theme again this season is faith, and this is their faith in Spock, that he's not a murderer, you know? And then Pike orders Burnham to open the Spock's files because... It's less of a regulation buster if she does it, I guess. And that's an order. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's the he other orders thing. her to break yeah. into it. <laughs> You're not getting out of this, by the way. <laughs> oh, yeah. I guess we find that Amanda's the one that stole the, the medical files. We learned that in the previous segment, but yeah, that she was the one who stole them. It's one of those things. It's just like the, a comedy of bad timing, you know, like, oh, I'm going <laughs> to steal my son's files and, you know, I'll figure out what's going on. And they're like, ah. Now, we know there's something worse happening because his medical files are missing. (laughs) So, okay. Burnham and Amanda review Spock's medical files. It goes back to talking about when Spock was a child and that he he had some learning problems and some emotional empathy issues. He couldn't really identify with other people. And this began to make Amanda worry that her son was a psychopath. So we can see there might be a little doubt in her about the murder capability on Spock's behalf, you know. For as much as Spock is always hailed as a a great example of Vulcan logic, I feel like he displays empathy a lot more than what he would admit. You constantly see that in his character. So it was a little weird hearing somebody say he is a extreme, you know, has extreme empathy deficiency. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, like last night, so me TV every Saturday night, late at night, they play uh, an episode of Star Trek. They play it in order. So you don't really get a choice about what you're seeing. It's just whatever episodes on. <laughs> so it was the, uh, the naked time or the naked. Now one of those is the next gen episode. And one's the TOS episode where they get a drunk virus. Yeah. We talked about that. Yeah. And there's the scene where Kirk and Spock are talking and Spock's having a meltdown and he tells Kirk, when I feel friendship for you, I feel nothing but shame. And then Kirk just slaps the shit out of him. Pull yourself together, man. (laughs) (laughs) Which I forget, but that happened a few times back on the original Star Trek where Kirk would have to just slap the shit out of him. (laughs) Just like, get your head back in the game. Come on. Yeah, Spock, logic and all that. I get it, but we're friends. Calm it down. (laughs) I was watching that last night. That cracked me up. I was just like, oh, yeah. You know, there's Spock and his lack of empathy right there. But so Amanda is like worrying that her son was a a psychopath. They start going through Spock's files. Um, Amanda recognizes some of Spock's drawings as a child and one that he called the Red Angel which he had seen as a child and the computer indicates an incoming transmission and Burnham leaves to take a call on her quarters. Yeah. This is that call that I was referencing earlier between Burnham and, um, Ash Tyler. Yeah. Basically he's reporting on what's going on with the Klingon empire, even though they're outwardly united inwardly, they're starting to fracture. 
that would be a bad thing for Starfleet if that happened. So he wanted to go ahead and let Burnham know. But yeah, this is when she sees his beard and, and hair and is like, oh, <laughs> well, you know, in the post-war era, we're growing our hair back. Yeah, yeah, they do, they they do a nice <laughs> job of kind of trying to stuff in some facts. Like, oh yeah, 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 Klingons were normally hairy. It's cool. We just seen the manscape during war. <laughs> um, but he also says that he's beginning to worry that his presence is actually harming Lorel and her plan. Yeah, I mean, kind of like what we already said, though. Given that, even though I think some of the upper echelons of the um, Klingon rulers do kind of know that Valk's in there, he looks like a human. I kind of get it from their point of view, you know, for all intents and purposes, that's a human I'm looking at. He has the same rhetoric as Valk does, obviously. He is uh, by Lorel's side. <laughs> so that part is, is right. But, um, dude, you're a human. I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah, to me, you'll never be anything but a human. I get uh, Lorel's point, too. Both sides. I feel both sides have equally valid concerns with the position they're, they're in with Tyler. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, yeah, it's kind of a small background story, but it is an interesting story, kind of where they're going with this and how it turns out, you know. Back on the bridge of the Discovery, and Saru welcomes the uh, the trainee candidates to the shadow test, this, this infamous shadow test. Oh, yes, that's test. what that means. <laughs> yeah, this infamous shadow test, yeah. Because when you said it before, I was like, yeah, I heard it in the episode, but I I already blanked on what it is. But yeah, that makes sense now. They're the shadow uh, officer. <laughs> yeah, because <laughs> when they first said it, I'm like, what is that? Is like like that part in Link where the where your own shadow attacks you, you know? Or uh, some Candlestein activity. Yeah. <laughs> Tilly is nervous and extra edgy because of May, and she of course gets paired off with Captain Pike. And he can tell he's really trying to like let her relax and chill out and, you know, do whatever. And May starts talking about, well, that can't be the captain. He he's smaller and blonder. And so now Tilly's thinking, well, she's looking for Lorca. So there's some miscommunication going on here, right? Oh yeah. She also says he's not funny but terrifying. So I guess uh in Tilly's brain, that's Lorca. <laughs> yeah, that's that's the one I was thinking of here. So Tilly like starts speaking out loud to May, and then she starts to explain herself, and then she realizes she sounds crazier than Garth Visar by doing this, you know. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's a deep cut there. We'll know who our who our real Trek fans are now, you know. <laughs> Tilly just flat out quits the training program and bounces. I felt so bad for Tilly in this moment, man, because like she's been wanting to be an officer. Or uh, not an officer, she already is an officer, but a captain of a ship one day. And, uh, you know, if they think you're seeing people and talking crazy stuff, that's probably not going to happen. Well, they really <laughs> prefer that their ship's captains don't hallucinate frequently, you know? That's that one thing I've learned about Starfleet. So she quits program, bounces. Uh, we cut back to Kronos. Now Tyler's rubbing his hands, trying to get the paint off. Oh, yeah, I was wrong earlier because I thought this moment was earlier when we were talking about the uncle. Yeah, that's, that's okay. I just went ahead and rolled with it. Because <laughs> um, I was certain, I started like, wondering, like, shoot, I may, I may have just left that out. <laughs> um, <laughs> but, you know, he's doing the proverbial out, out, damn spot with his hands, you know. Yeah, yeah, some more Shakespeare stuff in Star Trek. Imagine that. Imagine that. <laughs> 
he notices Laurel's uncle, Eugili, uh, spying on him. When he confronts the uncle, it is revealed that Voke and Laurel have a little albino Klingon baby that they haven't named. Yeah. We come back from the commercial, and that's what we discover, that she says she's never even seen the baby or named it, and they've been keeping it a secret by keeping it here in this room. Tyler sees the baby, and you kind of get the sense that he kind of feels like complete. You know, this this kind of gives him a sense of direction or belonging or something. But then he tells her that even though he can't remember his love for her as, as Voke, they'll build a new love story together now. So we cut back to the discovery, and Amanda tells Burnham about Spock and the Red Angel. Burnham had run away when the logic... Oh, yeah, we cut back to their childhood. And Burnham had run away uh, as a child when logic extremists... And I, I want to stop after this and kind of talk about how much I hate this concept. <laughs> had bombed a learning center. Spock pinpointed Burnham's location so Sarah could rescue her. And apparently there's a version of time where she was killed by this creature out in Vulcan's Forge, but because Spock has a flash from the Red Angel of her location, he's able to direct his parents to go pick her up, and they get her out of there in the nick of time. And then when Spock says he got the location from the Red Angel, her, his parents just kind of assume he logicked it out and then had some crazy flight of fancy, because apparently Spock was quite the imaginative kid for a Vulcan. But they kind of pulled them apart, and this is when Burnham admits to Amanda that she see, saw the Red Angel at the first signal back at the Hiawatha. And that she was the one who caused the huge rift between her and Spock when they were kids by being kind of a shithead to him and driving him away. Yeah, because they thought, well, she Burnham thought that the logic extremists were targeting Spock's family because of her. So Amanda and her kind, they have their own little riff here. So Amanda kind of storms off all angry and says, you know, basically, I'm not going to need you. I'll go find Spock. I know the logic extremists are a thing that came from Enterprise. I hate this idea. I just, I think this is the most ridiculous. Logic terrorists are what we're given here by the Vulcans. Oh, we're so into logic, we're going to blow up school buses full of children. There is a certain amount of sense that that makes. Not that I am advocating for terrorism, but... I could see the logic in their logic about <laughs> being terrorists. They were having trouble convincing the leaders of Vulcan to pull out of the Federation. And so because of that, talking didn't work. So now we have to resort to violence. Like it, there is a certain logic to it. Obviously, again, I don't advocate terrorism. <laughs> From their point of view, I understand why they were doing it to an extent. I don't think it's dumb. I mean, maybe calling them logic extremists is dumb. <laughs> maybe that part's dumb. Attacking Sarek's family for not being logical when they've just raised a human to be logical. Well, that, that wasn't the whole point, though. Some of the whole point was the fact that Sarek fathered a child with a human, and then on top of that, fostered a human. So that was their problem. So they're kind of like the Klingons in a way with Ash and Laurel. So it's a similar thing here. You are kind of going outside the, the race here, um, and we don't appreciate that. How that would convince Vulcan to pull out of the Federation, I don't get that part. Yeah, and I, I would think that, you know, when you're having a conversation with people who are at least using Socratic logic, racism is not logic. 
You know, it's, hey, we should be totally insular and racist. Uh, No, you know, we need trade and it'd be good to have allies and some cultural exchange. That's fair. Yeah, it just doesn't make any sense to me, you know. No insular society has ever gone on to be a great society. All right, so at the Mokai estate, which is Laurel's clan, Laurel and Tyler enter the inner chamber to find Luigi dead. I'm going with Luigi, man. <laughs> He's Uncle Luigi for His me. name's changed a couple times now, yeah. but yeah. That's why you can't tell the difference between an Italian and a Klingon accent. They find him dead and hanging from the ceiling. <laughs> and the, the child is taken from its cradle. <laughs> Just then, Cole Shaw contacts them, holding the child in his arms. He explains that the pain on his face that Tyler tried to wipe off was saturated with sensor implants that act as a listening device. He had intended to only eavesdrop and kind of catch on to what Laurel's political strategy was, but just happened through the moment of luck to discover all of Laurel's secrets and about the baby. Oh, and the fact that Tyler communicated with Michael. Yep. I mean, he got it all, like uh, 30 minutes of all bad decisions all ended right in his lap. The paint you put on your face is saturated with sensor implants to act as listening devices. Why? Why would you assume that Tyler would do that? Or maybe he was just trying to goad one of them into making a move like that. So I I guess I believe it. I would actually need to go back and re- re-listen to some parts. Were they already making a thing of taking off the war paint or taking off the clan paint? Yeah, Laurel basically makes that. She's like, I see you've come here with the with your normal house paint, but we're not doing that no more. We're all one one culture. And then he, he does start goading her and Ash. So it didn't matter which one of the Well, and no, that's not true either, because you would know if you go after Laurel, it's going to be Ash that comes to kick your ass. You know this going in because he's been the right-hand guy to her for whatever period of time this has been now. Yeah, and plus it seemed like that was a cultural thing anyway, that the torchbearer would be the one to handle any matters like that. So, yeah, okay, I'll take it. So, okay, well, yeah, because I I was thinking that was kind of a sloppy setup, but now that we've talked it out a little bit, I'm like, no, okay, it it actually worked. So, let's see here. Uh, Cole Shaw demands that Laurel and Tyler meet him at the Chancellor's residence where he will return their child to them if she hands over control of the government. Seems like a fair trade if you, you know, you like kids, I guess. <laughs> Tilly enters the quarters she shares with Burnham. Burnham looks like she's been having a little crying fit there of her own. Burnham says Sara has been trying to get a hold of Tilly. Tilly catches her up with what's going on and says that she's been seeing ghosts ever since the accident with the meteor. As she begins to cry, May gets confused and then Tilly tells Burnham that May doesn't know what crying is. And this like flips a switch in Burnham's head. She's like, you show me a teenage girl who's never cried. And then Burnham goes, you don't need sick bay. You need Stamets. Dr. Stamets, microcologist MD or whatever that is. He's a mycologist. Yeah, he's, he's one of those. <laughs> or uh, astro-mycologist, sorry. Yeah. So we go we cut to... Uh, the uh, chancellor's residence. Cole Shaw holds out a document of abdication. Lorbell reminds him that she is still chancellor. He dismisses her as a Federation puppet, a creature who lies with humans. See, this is where I started getting the, um, the bestiality thing started to hit me was he, he accuses her of being a creature that lies with humans. I don't know. I guess maybe, maybe racist would be better than, than bestiality is the proper term. Yeah, I think that's the what I, the word I took issue earlier when you mentioned it. 
speciesist, I guess, would be the, the more correct. Yeah, because a Klingon would look at a human as below them in, on, the, on the hierarchy, I guess. So, you know, he wants her to sign a document abdicating power. And she basically realizes that once she signs that, he's going to kill them. So she says, you better kill us both because either one of us lived through this. We're going to hunt you down like a dog and, you know, kill you. Then a fight breaks out and Laurel and Tyler, they do pretty good. They hold their own pretty well here for going against some bodyguards and stuff. But Cole Shaw has some weird little paralysis machine that I've never seen in Star Trek before. I think they had stuff like that in the Mirror Universe and Discovery Season 1. Oh, could be. Maybe they did. Which uh, makes sense when you see who comes next. Right, yeah. <laughs> so he uh, captures them with like a paralysis device, and basically it's going gonna, it's gonna to strangle them. They're going to just not be able to breathe. So he walks over, cuts Lorel's hand, gets a fingerprint on the abdication. Then, Well, yeah, like you alluded to there, a cloaked figure, I guess, shows up, cloaked and hooded or something. Yeah. And mows down uh, whatever remaining guards there are, Sticks Colshaw in a bubble and then frees Laurel and Tyler. Laurel gets up, kills Colshaw, and then we learn that the uh, the savior here was none other than Emperor Giorgio. Yeah, even though she says, "No, I'm I'm retired captain of the um, Shenzhou." So yeah, so now you know Section Thirty One has kind of got their own plans for the Klingon Empire, and Philippa Giorgio is the one who's going to kind of ramrod the whole situation. Uh, she asked Lorel what she would think about killing uh, Tyler and the baby. Lorel's like, nah, I'm not really into that. And then she's like, oh, yeah, you don't really have a choice. So we're, we're left with some, some evilness hanging in the air for a moment. They kind of try to figure out why Georgia's been spying on them. And she admits to being uh, a consultant for her, uh, Starfleet security. Her mission was to make sure um, Lorel stayed in power. Yeah. So now we cut back over to the Mushroom Lab. Saru, Stamets, Tilly, and Burnham talk really fast like an episode of the Gilmore Girls, so it's kind of hard to follow. May recognizes Stamets and calls him the captain. So now we realize what she was talking about was the dude who flew the machine as captain. They're trying to figure out how Tilly may have been infected by a fungi. And then she remembers having one of the spores fall on her in the mirror universe. Well, she didn't exactly remember one spore falling on her, but the whole room was littered with them as they were leaving. And then Stamets theorizes that one must have attached itself to her. Yeah. So she got hit with spores in the mirror universe, and, and we're pretty sure that that's where they came from. She wants it removed. May's kind of fighting with them. He's going to use the dark matter to pull it out of her. They get it out of her, and they secure the fungi in a quarantine force field. Now we cut back to Kronos again. Lorel addresses the High Council, revealing that she had borne Voke's child, and that she had made Tyler her torchbearer to honor Voke. She then tells them that Tyler had murdered her son and betrayed her to the Federation, claiming that the Empire was fracturing, and that if Coleshaw had not intervened, she too would be dead. She then lifts Tyler's severed head, along with the head of the baby, before hurling Tyler's head into the chasm in front of her. She called Coleshaw's sacrifice a lesson, and she said that she was going to sacrifice as well and only have one child. Instead, she tells the council that they are her children now, and she's going to raise this family to greatness. She tells them not to call her chancellor, but instead to call her a fiercer title, 
mother. I actually like I like what they're doing here a little bit. It doesn't fit with what I know about Klingons, but well, I was watching that earlier today, and my wife was like, "Ew, why?" But I was like, "Well, to me, obviously the Klingons have a lot of real world influences, but this part more than anything reminded me of like a." Norse style culture you know actually like we talked about in the last episode where the leader of the little cult there was the all mother i think it's a similar type thing here oh yeah because the original idea before they were called klingons they were space vikings is what they were alluding to all right so meanwhile we cut to a strange ship in the orbit of boreth now this was a nice callback here you remember when Worf went on his vision quest and uh Kalos was reborn I can't, I mean, I, I remember the vision quest stuff, but I can't recall. Well, that was on this planet that they're at now, Boreth. Tyler, who is still alive and he's holding his still alive baby, remarks on how Giorgio had been able to synthesize their heads down to the smallest genetic detail and asked what kind of organization could have that kind of technology. In response, Giorgio shows him the black badge of Section 31. Again, Section 31 is one of the things they added to Star Trek and Deep Space Nine I've never been real hip to. Giorgio asks if Tyler really wants his son to become a monk. Tyler replies it is what Laurel wants, and he wants uh, the boy will be raised among the most devout followers of Kalos. He'll never know his parents, and he'll never leave the monastery, and he'll be, he'll be in good, solid hands. He won't be threatened by anybody, and he'll just kind of be set forward there. I don't take an issue with um, Section 31 as an organization. Like, it makes sense that in a military-ish type organization like Starfleet that they would have something that could go out and do black ops and stuff. It doesn't make any sense to me that they have their own uh, badge that definitely looks like a Starfleet badge. Yeah, see, that's the thing to me. <laughs> United Federation of Planets would definitely have a black ops division. I don't know that Starfleet would be the right, the right group, or that, or that having a, a clandestine group that has a recognizable badge. Like, oh, hey, look at that black badge! I guess you're with that secret group that we don't know exists called Section Thirty One. Yeah, I mean, it could be they they only wear it on the ship, but I don't know. <laughs> when I realized that they had badges, because I feel like every other time they've been, well, I guess the only time I've ever really seen Section Thirty One was. In the uh, the second Kelvin timeline Star Trek movie, I don't recall that they had their own badges like this. No, I, I don't remember that either. And that's part of my problem. It's that, you know you get these action movie writers, and they immediately zero in on Starfleet's Black Ops division. And you know, and I don't know that it's still the case, but they've been working on a Section Thirty One spinoff, and and it's just like, of course, of course, you guys are because you want to make Mission Impossible space. And I mean, hey, cool, though, that'll call out to a certain kind of fan. I mean, it, it probably won't be for me. I'll give it a shot. But I'm with you. Like, if I wanted to watch a Star Trek action stuff, I would just watch the Kelvin movies. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> we've, we've got some. Or Star that. Wars, either way. But, you know, I guess, I guess one of the things now is, Chris, and this is one of those things you got to keep in mind, this isn't like the old days. We're not just going to have one Star Trek series, and then when it folds, we'll start another one. We're going to have a whole bunch of different moving parts. And, you know, we're going to have cartoons for kids, and then we're going to have cartoons for the Rick and Morty fans. Well, man, I mean, I hate to keep going back to Marvel, but Marvel is really the one that proved that you could do it and do it well. You know, say what you will about the some of the individual movies. You have definitely have ones that are stronger than the others. 
but the overall arc is the main thing and the the consistency for the most part except for those you know minute little things that don't matter a whole lot like marvel proved that you could do it across a vast amount of uh, content yeah oh absolutely and that's one of the things you know because they had the netflix series and the regular tv stuff going and the movies going plus audiobooks or something else that they had or still have or maybe it's podcasts i don't know that they tie into the the cinematic universe but yeah marvel has definitely started putting out um I guess audio dramas. I guess is the closest thing you could call them. They're like fully um, full cast and sound effects and all that. Uh, big productions, actually. Um, they have one about Wolverine. They got another one about like the older Star Lord. I'm sure there are a couple others, others that I'm not thinking about. But yeah, I, mainly I'm talking about the MCU. No, but you're right. They're the ones that have all the all the moving parts that they've more or less. I mean, there's been a few slip ups. More or less, they've kept it all coordinated. Yeah, even through different writers and directors and all that. I don't know what happens to the MCU if Kevin Feige ever leaves Marvel, but it seems to be rest on his shoulders as far as all that continuity. But regardless, I don't know why DC doesn't look at that and follow suit, but that's a different podcast. Yeah. (laughs) But anyway, yeah. So I'm fine with Star Trek doing this. This is another one of my favorite IPs, so... I'm here for all of it. I was just thinking now that we're going to have so many different things and they're going to rotate because I think we'll hit the point where we probably have Star Trek throughout the majority of the year, but it'll be different stuff as it goes. And there'll be things there for different kind of viewers. You know, you'll have your more mature character pieces like Picard. You'll have your more gung-ho stuff like Discovery, you know, with the long form storytelling. And then for those of us who are like me and you who like old Star Trek, it looks like we're going to have strange new worlds. And for the guys that want Fast and Furious in space, there's going to be Section 31. Yeah, I'm here for it all. Yeah, I was going <laughs> to complain, but you know what? Now that I, again, now that I'm saying it out loud to you, I, I suddenly go like, oh, but there is a way for this to work. And again, like with the Marvel stuff I was talking earlier, you know, if I see a little snippet or a picture or something of something that hasn't come out yet, obviously my first instinct is to complain about it, but... Then I'm like, okay, nope, this is Marvel. They have a proven track record, so let me not freak out about this because I assume once we see it in practice, it's going to be good or at least, uh, you know, not terrible. So Paramount so far has my uh, has my trust. So Giorgio uh, then remarks that Tyler should stick around with her band of Merry Misfits. From the upper deck, Leland orders the helm to go to warp. He remarks that... Uh, that control values Tyler's skill, but her recruiting speech needs some work. Georgia tells him not to give her any notes and that Tyler was in. Did you find her saying, don't give me any notes? Does throwing that kind of showbiz lingo in there pull you out? Because it does me. Not really. Because, you know, Giorgio is a part of this organization on her own terms. And while... uh Section 31's mechanisms might line up with hers sometimes. Giorgio's still her own thing. So she's not a like, sure, you're my captain, but I'm not trying to take no orders from you. I got the man, so shut up and color. That's the way I took it. <laughs> That's fair. That, that kind of covers it. Overall, what'd you think of this episode? I thought it was real good. The The stuff with Tilly is starting to ratchet up. Even though the thing was pulled out of her, that's not the end of 
that whole situation. The stuff with Spock is still puzzling at this point. The first time I watched this through, I, I couldn't even begin to speculate on what was going on with him because <laughs> it was just like, wow, all this stuff is so out of character for what I know of Spock. So I'm, I'm not sure what the heck's going on right now. When I first watched this, I don't think I knew that Spock had been cast by this point. I still thought we were never going to see him. I thought it was going to be like Supergirl in that first season where she'd talk about her cousin and they'd show a guy wearing a cape in silhouette, but you never actually saw Superman. I was kind of wondering if they were going to do that. And then as we learned, you know, no, we, we meet, (laughs) we meet the old enterprise crew person by person. And I was pretty excited by that. I like this episode. I'm kind of hit and miss with Klingon stuff. When I was younger, I liked the Klingon stuff quite a bit. But then as I aged, I kind of realized it's kind of like Nietzschean philosophy. Like to a teenager, it's really cool. And then you hit your, you know, you you hit adulthood and you're kind of like, oh, it's kind of dumb. And then you get a little bit older than that and you realize, you know what? I didn't read it right either one of those two times. And it's okay. Yeah. Aside from what they physically look like, I'm really, I really dig what they're doing with the Klingons here. Yeah, it's an interesting spin on it, finding out that there was this mother character. I I don't know how much more of this we're going to see. Yeah, me and my wife were talking about that today. Um, I hate giving spoilers for Discovery, but, you know, if you have not seen past season two of Discovery, I guess don't listen to the next 30 or 40 seconds here. Uh, (laughs) But once they get in there, the time travel stuff, I was kind of wondering, like, How's all this going to play out that me and my wife are talking about? I was like, you know what? I bet Pike kind of gives a continuation on what's happening in this timeline, at least somewhat. It has to because the Klingons play such a big part of, well, at least they're setting up the Klingons to play such a big part of what's going on in the Federation down the line. So I got to think that some of this stuff we're seeing right now will get touched back on in Strange New Worlds. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I would. I would have to think so. I mean, I know they're going to do a lot of exploration, which is what I'm looking forward to. But they're going to have to talk about what's going on in the bigger universe as well. Yeah, I don't think you'll ever get like that true Planet of the Week stuff like we got in TOS. I still think you're going to have these season arcs as well. I could be wrong, but given the way storytelling is done today, um, especially with like the TV show type format i I don't think you're gonna get a straight planet of the week thing like we got with the original series i mean even then there was some little longer longer arcs there but not much so yeah i I think we're gonna see i think we're gonna see stuff like that um especially how the enterprise fits in with the federation at large but you know obviously i hope the emphasis is on that planet of the week stuff but i'm also hoping there's like some little arcs playing out in the background too well, they're going to have to do character arcs and that sort of thing. They've already programmed Pike. He knows what's going to happen to him. That's kind of an interesting thing. I don't know how I feel that's going to work over the long haul, but he knows that after he's promoted the fleet captain, he's going to get fried in a uh, Class J um, cruiser exercise ship. And it's just kind of an interesting take, you know? Yeah, yeah. I can't wait till we get to that episode again, because that's something I'll want to revisit as far as like the conversation around what he saw but yeah overall i like this season i like where the storylines that are going on so yeah 
I like it. <laughs> yeah, no, I'm I'm good with it. I, I you know, I never hated uh, Discovery as much as some of the people let on, and I was actually really excited by season two with Pike coming in because again, I've had this interest in Pike as a captain since I was a kid, you know. And here, holy cow, here we're going to see some stuff he did, you know. Well, Chris, I guess I should probably wrap it up. So, um, where are we headed next week? Yeah, so next week, Pike is investigating a murder in an unhealthy city. His ship is destroyed by a monstrous time machine, and with the help of an uncultured archaeologist, he must journey into the void in order to save his children. That sounds like a great episode. (laughs) I can't wait to check that one out. All right. Well, everybody, if you like what you heard or didn't like what you heard, you got something to say to us, hop on over to strangenewtrekshow.com. we got a number of ways to reach us there. I want to give a big thank you to uh, Miguel Esparza for doing our theme music here at Strange New Trek, and we will see you on the next Planet of the Week. Tilly falls behind as she runs through quiet you. You know, they shouldn't allow dogs on starships. That's all I'm going to (laughs) say. That Jonathan Archer, he started a real problem.